Second Kings chapter number 14. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1 of 2 Kings chapter number 14. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, In the second year of, Jeho- or of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Let me pause there and say, uh, you're not going to have to remember any of those names. Somebody say amen right there. He was twenty and five years old when he began to reign. Reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet not like David his father. He did according to all things as Joash his father did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away. As yet the people did sacrifice and burnt incense on the high places. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. But the children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children, or uh, shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers. But every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Look with me at verse 7. It's our text this morning. He slew of Edom in the valley of salt ten thousand. Took Selah by war. and Called the name of it Jokthiel unto this day. I want to read that again to you. He slew of Edom in the valley of salt ten thousand. Took Selah by war. And called the name of it Jokthiel, or Jokthiel, unto this day. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word, Lord. I know that in the frailty of my flesh, Lord, I do not deserve your blessing. But I know that your word always deserves to be blessed. So, Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless your word and that the Holy Spirit would have liberty this morning to do in hearts what is most needed. Father, you knew who would and would not be here this morning. So I ask you to meet the heart's needs of those that are here Lord, in a particular way through Your Word. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, alien from You, Lord, uh, absolutely absent from the family of God, and hopelessly, helplessly damned to hell, I pray that this morning, Father, that they would see the hope of Calvary and the free pardon and the debt that's been paid by Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning they would come to You before it's everlasting too late. Father, that You'd receive the glory... Father, they'd receive salvation in Your name. We love You, Lord, this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm very interested in verse number 7. As it chronicles for us the life of Amaziah, the king of Judah. But I don't necessarily want to spend much time looking at Amaziah, but I want to look at what he did. Because when the Bible says something in a specific way, it says it for a specific reason. And I'm interested in some of the names and some of the words that are used in verse number 7. I'll read it once more for your edification. It says, He slew of Edom in the valley of salt ten thousand, and took Selah by war, and called the name of it Jokthiel unto this day. Now this verse may seem mysterious to you, but I want to spend just a few moments before I preach substituting some ideas that I believe Scripture is representing here. Uh, Now, let me be very clear in saying I believe the Bible says just what it ought to say here. 
But as we compare spiritual things with spiritual, we'll probably find that some of these names and some of these titles have some ideas that are connected to them. When I say the name Edom, that, that name may not be very familiar to you. Whenever I say Edom, you say, eat what? Amen. <laughs> but uh, that name Edom is a name, and we actually studied this two weeks ago in preaching about the birthright that was given away and sold away by Esau that was rightfully his, that God had given him, but he gave it away for a moment of pleasure. And I want to read to you the origin of this name Esau, just one verse in 20, Genesis 25, 30. And uh, it's in the story of Jacob and Esau. And it says, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. The word Edom means red. We find that it's closely connected with the idea of the flesh and of carnality. That part of a man that has a desire to do his will and his good pleasure. And uh, here uh, to four, after uh, Esau had committed this sin, all of his descendants, they weren't called Esauites, but they were called Edomites. And Esau, the Bible teaches us, was red and hairy all over. And the name Edom means red. But he wasn't called red because he had red hair. He was called red because of what he did. It's not your nature. After you're born again, you still have a sin nature. But that sin nature doesn't have to define you. What defines you is your actions and what you do. He wasn't called red because he had red hair. He was called red because he ate red pottage. Amen. So the name Edom is connected with the descendants of Esau, but it will always be connected with the idea of the flesh and the natural man and carnality and doing that which pleases us and not that which pleases God. The Bible says that Amaziah slew of Edom 10,000. Where did he slay them? The Bible teaches that he slayed them in the valley of salt. Now you may say, well, what's the significance of salt this morning? Well, I would say this. Uh, the Bible says in the book of uh, Colossians, uh, chapter number 3, I want to read it to you very quickly. The Bible says, let your speech be always with what? With grace, seasoned with salt. In many ways, and salt represents several things in the Word of God, and uh, Christ said to Christians that ye are the salt of the earth. And it deals with the effect of the believer in the life of this world. But I would say that in some ways, salt also is indicative of grace in the life of the believer. Grace is that which preserves. It's not our good works that preserve us, but it's the grace of God. Grace is what it is that irritates a lost and dying world. You don't believe me, get out and knock on some doors sometime. If you tell people they can earn their way uh, to heaven, well, they'll invite you in and give you uh, tea and biscuits, amen. Or I guess down here it'd be sweet tea and biscuits, amen. But now you stand at someone's door and you tell them you're lost, you're undone without Christ, and there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. Christ must save you, and your good works will not avail you. You'll find people getting upset at you. Grace irritates this world. Grace is that which purifies. Salt purifies, doesn't it? We talk about salt in the wound, and that's pretty uncomfortable, but it has a cleaning agent and element to it. Grace certainly purifies. I'm thankful for grace in our lives, but I would say that salt in many ways could represent the idea of grace. We come to the idea of this word selah or selah. Now, most of you are familiar with that if you've read the book of Psalms. The word Selah or Selah uh, literally means a high or exalted place. And the name Selah given here is closely connected to that word. They both have the idea of the cliff, 
of the rock. But you also know that the word selah in the book of Psalms represents a musical action. Whenever the word selah was given, it was a uh, signal to stop the music, to pause and to meditate. It was a time of quietude. It was a time of meditation. It was a time to spend considering the Lord, who He is and what He's done. I want to give you a final thought before we begin the preaching. Don't get excited. Not a final thought, but another thought. We have a name, Jokthiel or Jokthiel, given to us. This word literally means blessedness or blessing. So allow me, if I can do this without doing damage to the Scripture, I'm not by any means trying to change it, but if we, if we just take these ideals, could we maybe read this verse this way? Could we maybe say that Amaziah slew of the natural man in the valley of grace 10,000 and took his quiet time by war and called the name of it blessedness unto this day? Can I say to you that you and I have a responsibility to get alone with God? We have a responsibility to spend time with the Lord. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. If you're saved by the grace of God, there ought to be a time and a place in your day in which you spend alone with the Lord. Away from everything else. Away from the distractions and discouragement of this world. A time when you spend with God. Could I call it your Selah moment? Your time that you spend to ponder the Lord. Your time that you spend in prayer to Him and in study of His Word. You know what prayer is? Prayer is us talking to Him and His Word is Him talking to us. A time when you're conversing with God and spending time with Him. And we know it commonly as our devotional time. And could I just give you this simple thought? Could I say that Amaziah had to take Selah by war? And you and I... My brothers and sisters, if we're going to have that time alone with the Lord, the only way we'll take it is by war. Do you know that there is a battle that rages day in, day out? I talked about this morning in Sunday school. Paul says that I have fought a good fight. And I think there's a lot of things that that entails, but can I say that Paul was denoting the worthiness of this fight that he was in. I think Paul also was saying, I have done my best for the Lord. But I think Paul was saying, this fight that we're in, this is a good fight that we're in. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In fact, I want to read it to you. I don't want to misquote it. It says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm saying to you this morning, friend, that there's a battle taking place for your walk with the Lord. I mean, I'm telling you that the devil's going to do everything he can to destroy your walk with the Lord. I'm saying that the world is going to do everything they can to destroy your walk with the Lord. And let me say that your chief enemy is that of the flesh, and he is going to seek to destroy your walk with the Lord. If you're going to have a walk with the Lord, it's not going to come without a fight. There's some things you're going to have to crucify in your life if you're going to make time to spend with the Lord. The Bible tells us, and I want to give you three thoughts very quickly. I want us to look at the foe in this battle. The Bible says that he slew of Edom 10,000. The flesh, the natural man, the carnal man. Can I tell you, your own worst enemy is sitting right there with you. And I ain't talking about your spouse, amen? (laughs) 
your worst enemy. And we can look around and we can blame everybody in the world, but at the end of the day, I'm my own worst enemy and you're yours. The flesh is our greatest battle. I know that man. I've met him. I've seen him many times. He's the man that follows me around. And sometimes he's the man that's leading and the other man's following. I know that man. I've seen him. I've seen him when he rises up in pride, Brother Ralph. I've seen him when he wants his way and not God's way. I've seen him when he doesn't have time for an almighty and thrice holy God. I've seen that man before. I don't like him. He is the flesh. He is the natural man. He is the carnal man. He is Toby Weber. He is the will. He is the desire. He is the obstinance. He is the stubbornness. He is the independence of my being from Almighty God. I don't like that man. He's my enemy. He's the one trying to destroy me. You say, preacher, I thought the devil was trying to destroy us. Sure he is. How's he going to do it, though? We're sealed by the blood of Christ. How's he going to do it? When he wanted to destroy Job, he had to go to God first about it. He had to go to God. He had to ask God if it was okay. God allowed it in Job's life. But you know who the devil doesn't have to ask God about? He don't have to ask God about our flesh. He can come and appeal to our flesh, and we can make the decision to succumb to the temptation of Satan, and it can grieve the very heart of God. He's our foe. He's our enemy. Do you remember there was a particular time when the Lord sought to draw... And there were several times like this in the gospel, but one in particular when our Lord sought to draw an inner circle of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, away and alone to spend time with them. It was there on the eve of His death as He went into that garden which He was wont to go into, a place of solitude and a place of rest and a place of spiritual refreshment and nourishment for the soul of the Savior. And He went into this garden and He went and He set His disciples down. You know what He said to them? He said, watch and pray with Me one hour. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, friend. We're about to all put our hypocrite hats on because we all sing sweet hour prayer. We all sing sweet hour prayer, but the question is how many of us really spend an hour in it? It's easy to be judgmental of the disciples, but let's lay our own life on the examination table and ask ourselves how we're living. So he says, I want you to watch with me and pray for one hour. And the Savior goes away, and there he wrestled with what we know not, truthfully. I mean, we can try to pry into the, to the psyche and the pathos of the Savior in those few moments, and we'll still come up short of what he really suffered in those few moments. And as he prayed, the Bible says he sweat, as it were, sweat drops of blood. There he wrestled with unknown powers of darkness. And I'll tell you what, he, re- he laid his will on the altar. His, his will was always in harmony with his Father. But as an example to you and me, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. As an example to you and I, even though his will was a divine will, and with the Almighty Father was in perfect harmony, still he offered it on the altar of his grief to his Lord. And you know what? He came back. And he found his disciples, and they were asleep. They were asleep. You better be careful sleeping through the Christian walk. Your your life will sleep through something important. Amen? Whenever they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? Their eyes got heavy. They fell asleep. They just about missed it. They just about missed the transfigured Lord because they were sleeping through their Christian walk. So they're asleep. And you know what our Lord says? He comes back. I'll read it to you lest I misquote it. Look with me in Matthew chapter 26, just one verse. Uh, You can just hear me read it if you'd like, or you're welcome to turn there. In Matthew chapter 26, verse number 41, the Bible, our Lord says, Watch and pray 
that ye enter not into temptation. Listen to what he says. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, there was a part of those disciples that had a desire to spend time with the Savior. There was a part of those disciples that had a desire to walk with our Lord. There was a part of our disciples, and you'll never convince me of this concerning the life of Peter. Peter absolutely would have died with the Savior. The problem was Peter had a struggle living with him. Peter was ready to go to the chopping block or to go to the cross. Uh, Peter was ready to go and to be flogged to death and beaten to death. Uh, Peter was ready to go to the end of a hangman's noose. Peter said, Lord, I'll die with you. And you know what our Lord said? He said, Peter, you say you'll die with me, but... Before the cock crows thrice uh, in the morning, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter's problem wasn't dying for the Lord, it was living for the Lord. Peter was willing to end his temporal life. He just wasn't willing to crucify his spiritual, his natural man, crucify the spiritual side of him that needed to be dead so that he could walk with Christ. Peter had a desire, though, I believe that. His spirit was willing. Some of you here today, you have a desire. You have a willingness to want to walk with the Lord. The problem is you feed your flesh too much. You feed your flesh too much, and so your, your flesh is weak. Your spirit is weak. Uh, the flesh was weak in the sense that uh, they physically could not withstand it, but the natural man was strong in that it was opposing the spiritual man. I'm convinced of this more and more as I live, and I can see it more and more in my life, and I believe I can see it more and more in the life of others, that there is a battle taking place. I mean, you can see it, neighbor. You can see it when people start serving God. The road gets rocky. It gets tough. What's the devil trying to do? He's trying to destroy them before they do something for the cause of Christ. As I was teaching this morning about that good fight that Paul was in, that fight really began before Paul was ever even born again. Paul learned the things of God as he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And he began to be indoctrinated in the things of Judaism. They laid the foundation for his young life. And the next time that we see Paul, he's standing there holding the coats of the men that stoned Stephen. You don't think that had an effect on him? I believe there's two things trying to take place that day. I think the devil was trying to intimidate him. And I think the Lord was trying to stir him. And as he stood there, and here's this man, here's Stephen... Stephen's a man that's supposed to be contrary to Jehovah. Stephen's a man that's supposed to hate Jehovah in Paul's mind. Stephen is a man that's a charlatan. Stephen is a man that is a spiritual fornicator. Stephen is a man that has compromised the great truths of Judaism to accept the way of this, uh, re uh, this renegade Nazarene. And yet as he sees him dying, the Bible says that his countenance shone. And he prayed for the forgiveness of those that were stoning him. And as he looked up towards heaven, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That had to shake Paul's foundation. That had to cause some questions in his young mind. And you know what Paul did? He did what a lot of us do. He started running. Because we don't hear anything about Paul persecuting the church until after the death of Stephen. Something changed in him that day. And he began to persecute the church. But God was still working on him. See, things were coming to a breaking point in Paul's life that culminated on the road to Damascus when God showed up. You know what the Lord said? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He says, Paul, I've been dealing with you. And you're fighting and you're running. See, that battle had already been taking place. Paul cast his lot with the Savior that day and got born again by the grace of God. 
But the battle didn't stop there. All through Paul's life, he said, we're troubled on every side. We despair. There's death all around us. Paul said there's a constant battle taking place. But you know who Paul feared the most? You know what he said in the book of Romans? Or in the book of 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 15. He said, who shall deliver me? Who shall deliver? Who gives the victory? Where does the victory come from? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He said in the book of Romans. Who shall deliver me? Paul said, I'm not worried about those opposing me. I'm not worried about those outside of me. He said, I'm not worried about Nero and his chopping block. The biggest struggle for Paul was Paul. The biggest struggle for you is you. Look at the persistence. He slew of Edom 10,000. You know what Paul said? Paul said, I die daily. Don't think for one moment that you crucify yourself one day, you won't have to do it the next. And I found this. I found out that the stronger, stronger we get in the battle, the more feeble we feel in the battle. You know what the Lord said to Paul? Paul was struggling. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul prayed and asked God to take it away. And the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul was stronger in the weakness that he felt than he had been when he had felt strength in his inner man and in his body. Why? The natural man was dying daily. The spiritual man was being renewed day by day. We see the foe in this battle. Let me say a word about the field of this battle. He slew of Edom 10,000 in the valley of salt. We might say in the valley of grace. In the valley of purification. In the valley of preservation. And can I say that we learn more about this fight in the low places than we do in the high places. We grow closer to God in the low places than we do in the high places. Thank God for the high places in life. Thank God for times when it seems as though God lifts you up and God steps down and somewhere in the stratosphere, heaven meets earth in our hearts and we're in a high place. But it's there in the valley of the shadow of death that we feel His leading hand upon us. It's there in the valley and in the low places that we learn the lessons of grace. We learn two things. I want to say that there we learn the nature of this fight. We learn the strategy of this fight. That's what Paul learned in his low place when he prayed for that thorn to be removed. And the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul learned something. He said, I will therefore glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's some lessons you're not going to learn, but in low places. And Paul learned in his difficulty and in his moment of weakness, he learned the true strength of the Lord. He learned that it was God that sustained him. He learned that if he was going to survive, listen to me, he needed Selah. He learned that if he was going to live for Christ, it wasn't what he did on the steps of the synagogue. It wasn't what he did on the steps of pagan temples. But it was what he did in the prayer closet that made the difference for him. He learned that that's where it was won and lost. He learned that this battle and this grace that was needed and this battle that was fought was fought in the secret places of our lives. The book of Psalms chapter 18 says of the Lord that He hath made darkness 
his pavilions round about him. I tell you, you get closest to the Lord when you enter the darkness. And some of you right now, some of you are wondering what's going on in your life. And you think that God's given up on you, and you think God's forgot about you, but it's nothing but the battle getting hot and you stepping into the darkness to get closer to your captain. Some of you are afraid. You don't know whether you're in the will of God, whether you're out of the will of God. Your life is torn into pieces and you don't understand it. And you're dealing with sorrows that no one could know and no one can identify. And you're getting ready to end it and you don't know what to do. You think God's given up, but God hasn't given up. God's digging in in your life. He's getting in close in your life. And He's teaching you some things you can only learn in the darkness. You can get a distant portrait of our Lord from the high mountain, but it's in the low valley that we lean upon His breast and hear the heartbeat of an almighty God. It's there that we grow close to Him. It's in the valley of salt that it gets done. You learn the nature of it. But let me say you learn the necessity of it. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about the trouble they had when they were in Asia. And he said, we would not have you to be ignorant, brother, concerning the trouble which we had in Asia. We were pressed above measure, pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. Paul says we were going through a dark place. We were going through a low valley. We were fighting this fight and we felt like we were losing. You say, preacher, what do you reckon it was that Paul was going through? You can believe what you want about this, but I believe the death that Paul's talking about, I believe he's talking about an inner anguish and sorrow. And you may not understand, and listen, if you don't understand it yet, there will come a time if you live for Christ that you will understand it. When you serve God, when you walk with God, and when you fight this fight, you know why a lot of people aren't having a problem fighting this fight? Because they're not fighting. There can be a battle going on, and, you know, and if you're not in it, you might not know about it. But if you're in it, you'll know. You'll know. If you're engaged in it, you'll know. You'll know that fight. And some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. But if you get in the fight, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's an inner anguish and an inner sorrow when the embattlements of hell set themselves against your soul and do their best to sink you. When they do everything they can, when the discouragement, when the depression, when the frustration... And you say, well, don't you have people in your life? Of course, you probably do too. But there's still times when the help you need can only come from an almighty God. He puts you in that valley for a reason. It's there in the valley of grace, in the valley of salt, that you're going to learn these things. It's only through Job's trials that he could learn what he learned. It's only through Job's trials. The Bible says of Job that the latter part of him was better than the first part of it early part. If you look at the life of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's one of the most beautiful books in all the Word of God. Habakkuk starts off as complaining. If you read the first chapter, he's complaining. He looks around and he says, Lord, I'm disgusted with what I see and I'm disgusted that you're not disgusted with it, Lord. I look around and I see people blaspheming your name and I see the wickedness that's all around. Lord, why won't you show up and do something about this? And he cries out, with the heart cry of revival. And he says, Wilt thou not revive thy work in the midst of the years? You get to chapter 3, and Habakkuk's attitude and story has changed. His story has changed. I don't know. I'm getting ready to be a parent. You forgive me if I seem like I'm rambling. I'm not saying that's part of being a parent, but it probably is. You lose your mind. But um, 
so I don't really know anything about parenting Ralph. I pastor, which I'd imagine is a little bit similar, but, um, you know, there comes a time in a baby's life. Now, I'm not talking about when they're sick or when they need something, but you know sometimes babies cry just to cry, right? And sometimes part of weaning them, when they don't really need anything, when they're safe, when they're in your sight, sometimes that mama, she'll step out of the room and she'll let that baby cry and cry and cry until it cries it out. Until that baby comes to the place where he realizes everything's okay. And then typically the mother will come back into the room and step back in, make sure that the child is... You see, the child was never out of her sight, but she was out of its sight. You understand what I'm saying? That's what happened in Habakkuk's life. Habakkuk is crying out unto the Lord, and he's got all this injustice around him. You come to chapter 3, and Habakkuk just wants the Lord back in his life. Habakkuk just... Habakkuk don't care what the Lord does as long as the Lord's there and as long as He's present. You know what Habakkuk learned in the Valley of Salt? He learned the necessity of his Selah time with the Lord, of his quiet time with God, of the presence and power of an almighty God. Habakkuk learned the necessity of it. Paul, when he was in Asia, he learned the necessity of it. We despaired even of death. You know what he says? That we might trust in God, whom raiseth the dead. My greatest fear is learning to live the Christian walk without Christ. And there's a lot of people that have done it. There's a lot of people that have learned how to go through the motions. They've learned how to walk the walk, and they've learned how to talk the talk, and they've learned how to say the right things. They've learned how to look the right way, and they've learned how to say amen when it's time, and they've learned how to say oh me when it's time, and they've learned how to do all the things that people expect out of a Christian. But they have no inner life with Jesus Christ. God help us that we get to the place where we learn how to do it without. God help us as a church when we get to the place where we can have church without Him. Am I okay? There's a lot of churches at that place today. We need to feel the necessity of this time. The field was a place of lowliness and of grace and a place of trial and difficulty. But I want to say just a quick word about the fruit of this battle. The fruit of this battle. The Bible says when Amaziah had slew all these Edomites, and he had fought them in the Valley of Salt, that when he had won the battle, he called the name of the place Jokthiel, or Jokthiel, which means blessedness. You know, probably Amaziah couldn't see the benefit of this place whenever he was uh, fighting the battle. He probably couldn't see when he saw all those Edomites the beauty and blessedness of this place. But he trusted that if he would fight for that place, he would find it blessed when he arrived. The name Jockfield means blessedness, but it also denotes the idea of rockiness. It was a place of many rocks, of many high places, of many cliffs. Could I say that it was a place that was higher than him? The psalmist said, lead me to that rock that is higher than I. He fought the battle in the valley so he could ascend the mountain. What he did in the valley was what carried him to the lofty heights. And when he got there, 
He said, this is a blessed place to be. You'll have to fight for that time with the Lord. You'll have to guard it. Listen to me carefully. You'll have to fight your friends for that time with the Lord. You'll have to fight your family for that time with the Lord. You'll have to fight the flesh for that time with the Lord. You'll have to fight temptation for that time with the Lord. It's not going to come easy. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know that you'd sit around in the house all day and the phone wouldn't ring and there wouldn't be a single problem. Nobody would come to you or anything. But you crack that Bible open and it's like somebody turned the light on. It only comes by war. And not only does it only come by war, but it's guarded the same way. You've got to guard your time with the Lord. It's not easy. Some of you don't have any time with the Lord because you think it's too difficult. Your problem is you can't see Jockthiel yet. You can't see the blessedness of it yet. You see the trial. You see the difficulty. You see the temptation to spend your time in other things, and it's too much. But you just haven't seen the blessedness of it yet. Let me give you a couple things. I could give you a thousand. Don't get nervous. I won't. But let me give you a couple things. Could I say that part of the blessedness of this time we spend with God is the presence of God? The presence of God. Listen to what Psalms chapter number 91 says. You've read it many times, no doubt. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. You say, what does it mean, abide under the shadow of the Almighty? Well, what does a shadow mean to me or you? It means something's close, don't it? Now, we could talk about a lot of things with a shadow. It's, a shadow is a dark place. A shadow is typically a place that's colder than that which surrounds it. A shadow sometimes can be a place of blindness when we cannot see the light. But there's a lot of things that a shadow would denote, but one thing for sure it denotes is the close presence of something. And let me just put it as simply as the Savior did when He said, Abide in me, I will abide in you. If you don't spend any time with God, you won't spend any time with God. Is that simple enough? If you don't make time for God, you're not going to have God in your life. If you don't make a decision to spend time with the Lord. You say, I go to church. Yeah, you go to church to worship, but that doesn't mean that you go to church and that's where you spend your alone time with God. It's not enough. It's not enough. There's plenty of people that go to church week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, and make shipwreck of their life. What was missing? What was missing was that moment of devotion and quietude. That time they were spending with an almighty God, just them and Him. It's there that the presence of God is found. I could say the productivity of God. Christ said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, the same shall bring forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. You won't gain any ground in your Christian walk if you're not spending time with the Lord. It's as simple as that. You can have all the excuses. You can have, And listen, we usually do, you know. The, devil, the devil's a pretty smart fella, you know that? And the devil knows if he's going to have to waste his best excuses, he's going to waste them on what's going to hurt you the most. So you'll find that the things that can keep you from spending time with the Lord are usually important things. They're not minimal things, but nothing's more important than our time with the Lord.
nothing. The productivity of God. Let me say, the power of God. We'll never have power until we have prayer. It's as simple as that. We'll never have power until we have prayer. We can pretend, we can uh, assume, we can speculate. But let's be honest with each other. And let's admit that we all know what's really missing in our lives today. And it's the prayer closet. It's the one thing that we're assured will work that we don't try. It's the one thing that we know will succeed that we never endeavor. It's the one area of our life that has never failed us. But we fail to be faithful. We know the prayer closet works. What happens? The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Acts 4.13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It's that simple, neighbor. It's that simple. What made a difference in these men's lives? wasn't that they had walked with Him in the flesh. Paul hadn't walked with Him in the flesh. At least not the same way that these other disciples had. Paul had the power of God. And it wasn't that he had spent three and a half years with the Savior. It's that he spent day in and day out with the Savior. He said, we've known Him after the flesh, but we do not know Him after the flesh. What was he saying? Paul says, yeah, I was alive when he was alive. But that's not what made the difference in my life. Paul said, what makes the difference is that day in and day out, I crucify myself and I grab hold of the horns of the altar and I get alone with an almighty God and I spend time with him and I abide with him and in him and he abides in me. And that makes the difference in my life. You have no power over sin until you have prayer. You'll have no power over discouragement until you have prayer. Listen to me, uh, the, the, I'll tell you the key, the key to getting things done is not uh, giving a bunch of money to a preacher or joining a church or joining a denomination, but the key is the time you spend with God. If you can do all those other things, God bless you if you do, but that's not going to get the job done. Without prayer, you're helpless. Without prayer, you're hopeless. Prayer is the key. Some of you right now, or entering into a dark time in your life. Some of you have just come out of it. Some of you are right in the midst of it. You're in the valley of salt. You have lessons to learn. You have enemies to slay. And the captain of the opposing army, your flesh, is your worst enemy. See the battle that's around you. Fight it valiantly. For you have a captain of your salvation that leads you. He's fought this battle before. He's been through this before. He's a high priest that's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He took on him the nature of his brethren. He bore on himself flesh, and in flesh he defeated the law. And he fulfilled it. He's fought this battle. He's been through this before. He said, preacher, are you saying he had a sin nature? No, I don't believe he had a sin nature. But I believe he became sin for you and I on Calvary. He's been through this. You have a captain leading you that's been through it. You have an ear to bend low to you, to whisper your greatest fears and doubts and anxieties to. You have a high priest that intercedes. You have a Holy Spirit that comforts and leads and guides and strengthens. And you have a Bible that leads you and guides you along the way. You have all the weapons necessary for this warfare. 
The question is, do you have the will to fight it? There's many that won't fight it today. There'll come a day they'll have to face their captain. There'll come a day they'll have to answer for the things they've done. But you today have a choice. Will you fight this battle or not? Will you stand up to the flesh? Will you determine a time to be alone with Christ and to walk with Him? Will you fight this fight today? If you will, I encourage and call you to come to the Savior. Speak to Him. Lay your sword at His feet. And engage yourself in the battle against the flesh and the walk with the Savior today.